You're listening to KXRY Portland at 107.1 and 91.1 FM and KXRWLP Vancouver at 99.9 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. For decades, the isolated forests of Northern California provided cover for people growing marijuana illegally. I think of Petrolia as this little town kind of hanging off the edge of the world. It's very remote. These days, the pot trade is more out in the open and more dangerous. I was really um, saddened, disgusted, scared. Scared for the women in the community, scared for myself a little bit. The pot boom is sparking a new migration of workers, but it's also drawing sexual predators who are targeting women. Even the police can't protect them. We have a very high incident of violence in our county, and some people come up to grow and don't go back. Today on Reveal, hidden outposts where people are exploited for sex. But first, this news.
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Today, we're bringing you a program which sparked quite a response when it first aired last summer. Sitting in front of a glowing laptop in her small apartment, Elle Snow is typing up an online ad. You put in your title. You could be simple. You would put, like, your height, your weight. Elle's posting an ad on Backpage.com, the classified website used by millions to sell everything from antiques to used bikes. But her ad is in the escort section, where people go to buy and sell sex. A heads-up to listeners— Today, we'll be talking a lot about sexual exploitation and the inner workings of the sex trade. It's the most profitable way to work is through these ads. On the street, you get paid a lot less, plus it's a lot more dangerous. Elle isn't really offering herself up for sex. What she's doing is trying to catch pimps and traffickers. She knows a lot about the sex trade because she was trafficked herself. That's why we're not using her real name. She was dating a guy who turned out to be a pimp. Elle says he lured her to Sacramento, supposedly for a vacation. Then he used threats and violence to force her into having sex with as many as 10 men a day. I was there for, now I believe it's like seven months. Seven months of pure shock. That does a lot of stuff to your brain, you know. That's really, really hard to come back from. Elle escaped. As for the pimp, she eventually helped send him to prison for raping and trafficking a 16-year-old girl. This was two years ago, and it was the first and only successful sex trafficking case in this part of California. Elle doesn't live in a big city. Her hometown, Eureka, is perched in a remote corner of the state's rugged north coast. These days, she runs a small nonprofit called Game Over. Elle sees it as her obligation, her duty to disrupt the sex trade, which is thriving even in rural communities like hers. She keeps as many as five different cell phones by her side. There's her real phone for friends and family. Then there are the cheap burner phones. She uses them to take calls and texts from people answering her fake sex ads, like this one from a guy in Georgia. His initial um, text was, hey, gorgeous, how are you? This is a, a trafficker, by the way. Look, I don't know your situation. I just know I'm interested. If, if you're happy, I can respect that. But if not, and you're unhappy, and lately you've been thinking about choosing or changing your situation, give me a call or text. Let's talk about it. Elle can't prove that all of these men are involved with trafficking, a much more serious crime than prostitution, and involves children and adults forced into the sex trade. But after just a few months, she collects nearly 500 names and phone numbers of potential sex buyers and passes them on to police, who are starting to pay attention. Recently, she brought along one of her burner phones for a training session with police cadets at the College of the Redwoods in Eureka. So this is a $25 phone from Target. We all know what it is. Usually used for drug dealers, disposable phones, right? So I posted the first ad for this profile today. I've already gotten 15 different callers on this phone. So I have it set on vibrate. And here it goes again. New message right now. Elle cuts a striking figure in a sea of blue uniforms. She's six feet tall with long blonde hair. Two large tattoos are stamped on her arms. One is a saint, the other a demon. Throughout our talk with cadets, you can hear the phones buzzing with new calls and texts pouring in. This is from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. One in five runaways in 2015 were likely sex trafficking victims. 
When the session ends three hours later, Elle finds that more than two dozen people have responded to her ad on Backpage. This is not just metropolitan areas. It's absolutely in rural communities. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. Powered by the Internet, the sex trade is reaching into all corners of the U.S. But there's another reason it's thriving in this part of Northern California. Marijuana. Fishing, ranching, and timber were once big industries here. But now it's pot. The pot trade is worth billions. And police say that in recent years, it's become intermingled with the sex trade and organized crime. We wouldn't really have the gangs here. We wouldn't have the Mexican mafia. We wouldn't have, you know, the Russian mafia here if we didn't have the pot industry. This region is known as the Emerald Triangle. Up here, the trade is dominated by men, and it's a secretive world. That's because pot has occupied a legal gray zone in California. Medical marijuana has been legal, but recreational was only legalized last fall. Still, the trade has been booming for a while and attracting seasonal workers from around the globe. Most show up around the big fall harvest. A lot of the work involves trimming, harvesting marijuana plants and carefully manicuring their flowers or buds with small scissors. We made this recording with two women who were trimming on a pot farm set deep in the mountains of Humboldt County. They're hoping to make enough money to grow their own weed. But I like to come in and, like, get them at their little roots. The boom is also attracting traffickers and sexual predators. And because growing and selling marijuana has been semi-legal, a lot of that violence is never reported. I mean, none of this is monitored. No one's going to know, like, that you're here or not here. I mean, it's easy to go missing, I guess. It's easy for bad people to take advantage of it. And that's what this hour is about. We're going to look at the hidden places, real and virtual, where people are exploited for sex. Our partner for today's show is APM Reports, the investigative and documentary unit of American public media. We begin deep in California's pot country with reveals Shoshana Walter. She spent months there investigating sexual violence and found that as the pot trade gets bigger, the problems are getting worse. Here's show. This is a place that's used to keeping secrets. For decades, the forests have provided cover for the pot trade. But I found something else hidden in these stunning redwoods and remote valleys. Stories of sexual abuse and exploitation. I'll start with a young woman named Carmen who lived in a small town in central Mexico with her family. We don't identify victims of sexual violence, so we're not using Carmen's real name or the names of other victims in the story. Her mother had cancer and her father was unemployed. They were struggling. Then two years ago, Carmen says she and her sister met a man named Baldemar Alvarez on Facebook. He said he had large properties in Northern California and offered them a bright future. He told my sister and me, girls, when you get here, you're going to be very comfortable. You're going to have a job. I talked to some friends who own restaurants, and they're going to give you a job. You two only need to worry about crossing the border, and your life will change. Your life will change. It's the promise so many undocumented immigrants hope to hear. It's also a common ploy used by traffickers. Carmen left her family in Mexico, and a smuggler brought her across the border into the United States. But there was no restaurant job waiting for her. 
Instead, Baldemar took her to an isolated house about 150 miles north of San Francisco. He put her to work on a cluster of pot farms. Carmen suspected they were illegal. All the time I was in fear. If the police catch me, they're going to arrest me. They're not going to let me explain. They're not going to believe me. When Carmen wasn't working, she lived with Baldemar and his two sons. She says he ordered her to cook and clean the house. She says he also forced her to have sex with him, to repay him for the $12,000 he spent smuggling her into the country. Did he give you any idea of how long you would owe him? Yes, he said that I should be with him, through appreciation and payment of everything he did for me, for at least two years. And still I wouldn't finish paying him. Carmen told me she didn't know anyone. She didn't speak much English and felt isolated and trapped. In August of 2014, after nearly five months of abuse, Carmen asked Baldemar to take her to a clinic for stomach pains. A nurse examined her and gave her some disturbing news. They told her she was seven weeks and six days pregnant. That's Teresa Borhun. She works with victims of sexual abuse in Mendocino County. She says Carmen told the nurse that Baldemar was keeping her against her will and forcing her to have sex with him almost every day. She was really upset. She was in tears and didn't know where to go. She didn't know nobody in this county. A few days later, sheriff's deputies showed up at his house. They brought in Baldemar and Carmen for questioning. But from the beginning, they seemed to doubt Carmen's story. She told me one detective suggested she was making it up to get immigration documents. When the questioning was over, Carmen says this is what the detectives told her. Unfortunately, at this time, we do not have any evidence to detain him. Everything you say, he denies. Deputies did arrest Baldemar Alvarez for illegal marijuana cultivation, but he was out of jail in 20 minutes and never prosecuted. The Mendocino County Sheriff's Office declined to discuss the case. I went to Baltimore's home a few times to talk with him, but no one was ever there. Finally, just before finishing the story, I reached him on his cell phone. He told me Carmen's story was a lie. I thought she was my wife. You know, we were supposed to get married and we are planning to make a family. That was our, her and my agreement. He admitted that he paid someone to sneak Carmen across the border. He said Carmen still owed him for that. And he insisted he was trying to help her earn money for her family back in Mexico. But I tracked down other women who knew Baldemar, including the mother of one of his children. She told me Baldemar had abused her, too, after bringing her into the U.S. from Mexico. And she said there were other women. Whatever, whatever this person is, she's lying, too. I mean, not, I swear, it's not, it's not the case. I never abused her or anything. You know, everything, you help someone and all you get is a stab in the back, you know what I mean? As for Carmen, with Teresa's help, she boarded a Greyhound bus and fled to safety in another state. This story is one of dozens I uncovered in the Emerald Triangle. Undocumented immigrants like Carmen told me they had no idea they'd end up trapped on pot farms in Northern California and abused. Other women I spoke to came here specifically to work in the pot trade, earning money harvesting and trimming marijuana plants. They're called trimigrants, and thousands pour into the Emerald Triangle for the fall harvest season. College students and artists, working professionals, hippies, and other wanderers from around the globe. Many had positive stories and worked here without any big hassles. 
but other Trimigrants had bad experiences. They were robbed or beat up or raped. But unlike Carmen, they never went to the police. Then I spotted a rare case that actually made it through the criminal justice system. A 21-year-old environmentalist we're calling Terry moved here from Southern California to work on a pot farm. She ended up in the small remote town of Petrolia in Humboldt County. Jen Breyer Bonpane was a trauma counselor there and says something terrible happened to Terry. I was really um, saddened, disgusted, scared. Scared for the women in the community, scared for her, scared for myself a little bit. Terry didn't want to talk on tape, but she agreed to let Jen tell her story. It starts with a grower offering her a job, then a lift home late one night in his pickup truck. He went the wrong way in the truck, pulled up to the gate of this very dark, heavily forested eucalyptus grove, and stopped the truck and started touching her and said, you're my bitch. If you do anything with anyone else, I'll kill you. And she said something like, what are you talking about? And he said, I'll freeze your body and um, break you into pieces and feed you to the animals. Terry said he raped her in a nearby trailer. The man's name is Kalen Meserve. He's a local guy, captain on the volunteer fire department, and the son of a prominent environmental activist who moved here in the 1960s. Rumors about what happened that night quietly spread around town. Some people doubted Terry and were quick to defend Kaylin. He grew up here. She's an outsider. The initial reaction of even some of the of my friends were, well, what really happened? Or was she asking for it? Or who, who even really was she? Sam Epperson runs a small organic farm in Petrolia. Terry worked here, trimming buds in a small shed. We're standing in the middle of the garden. You can see at the base of each plant, there's a little, there's a drip system here with an emitter. Sam grows a mix of fruits, vegetables, and marijuana on about two acres. When I visited Sam's farm earlier last summer, his pot plants were five feet tall, bright green and leafy. When I was a kid, you wouldn't have plants growing in the full sun like this because you would get, someone would come and take them away. Where would you be growing them? Uh, in the partial shade in the, in, in the forest. Sam was raised in a hippie family that grew marijuana to get by, not to get rich. Back then, running even a small pot farm could land you in prison, so growers and their children lived like semi-outlaws. I was taught never to talk about it on the phone. You don't talk about the industry because you never know when someone will try to harm you. What we learned, maybe, my generation learned, was how to tell a lie. Terry's assault posed a dilemma for a lot of people in town, including Sam. He had vouched for Kaylin and encouraged Terry to consider working for him. On the other hand, Kaylin was known for his hot temper. Many people believed he was buying up land for large-scale pot grows, and they were bothered by that, too. But Jen Breyer Ponpain, Terry's trauma counselor, says people were reluctant to call in the cops. I think of Petrolia as this little town kind of hanging off the edge of the world, and it's very remote. Often, there's a sense of, like, not wanting to involve law enforcement because... It impinges on people's rights. People might get in trouble for stuff related to pot. So yeah, and then there's also this like caretaking part, which is the more positive part of that, I think, of like restorative justice. Like we don't want to just throw people to the wolves. Simply put, many of Petrolia's residents don't trust law enforcement. That's common across the Emerald Triangle, even when someone witnesses or experiences serious violence. They feel the cops won't understand or they'll be treated as snitches by the pot-growing community. Or they might face some other kind of retaliation, even violence. There's a lot of fear 
Um, there's a lot of, you know, if you um, report this, nobody will believe you. Brenda Bishop directs Humboldt Domestic Violence Services. I meet her at one of the shelters they run, a house on a quiet tree-lined street in Eureka. So we're at the safe haven. It's a confidential location, and um, that's about as much information I can give you. More than a dozen women and their children live here in rooms stacked with bunk beds. In 2015, Brenda's group took in around 2,000 crisis calls, an increase of more than 80% over the past four years. Brenda says much of this is due to a surge in sexual abuse and trafficking on pot grows. People just don't call and say, I'm being sex trafficked. It was a matter of kind of doing the intake and listening to what was going on. But the more we were seeing trimmers coming into the community for work, um, the more we were seeing women who were being sex trafficked. We also started seeing women who were being brought up specifically for trimming and for sex trafficking to provide sex for the kind of overlords or people who were seeing, um, overseeing the grows, the larger grows. A big marijuana grow can have a thousand plants or more. And quite often, this pot isn't sold in California's legal marketplace. It's shipped illegally to other states for big profits. That's one reason the cops tend to look at anyone involved in this as common criminals. We were a community that was very tolerant and very tolerant based on the medicinal properties of marijuana. And I think what happened is there became this outside influence. This is a great place to grow pot. And that tolerance level was really pushed. And I think it was pushed to the extreme that the police here, the law enforcement, really um, were taken by surprise. It's, it's tough. Andy Mills is the chief of police in Eureka. He agrees that sexual violence on pot grows is getting worse. And he says prosecutions are rare because they don't have enough evidence. And a small force spends a lot of its time trying to catch big-time drug dealers. But he says trimmers need to realize they're placing themselves in danger. That's obviously not to say that that woman or that young man deserves to be sexually assaulted. They absolutely do not. But I think we can all do things to minimize our risk. And not going to one of these grows is a good way to minimize your risk. Instead of developing more criminal cases, Chief Mills is trying to discourage trimmigrants from coming here in the first place. It's a sort of reverse sting. His department posts fake ads on Craigslist offering work on pot farms. Message three. Hi, this is Shai. Um, I just went on Craigslist. This is one of hundreds of job seekers who have responded to the ads with calls and emails. And I saw an ad um, of needing help with clippings. But there are no jobs. What the applicants get is a stern warning from Chief Mills that goes something like this. You didn't contact a grower, you contacted the police. We have a very high incident of violence in our county. And some people come up to grow and don't go back. In Petrolia, people got together at each other's homes, debating what to do about Terry's attacker, Kayla Meserve. Most of the ideas didn't involve bringing in the police. Suggestions included form a community tribunal, have the elderly women chase after him with their shoes, send a large group of men to his house to talk some sense into him. As for Terry, her therapist Jen says she was still in shock. She just wanted to disappear and never speak of it. Then the town found out about another woman who had accused Kaylin of assaulting her the year before. Kaylin's boss at the firehouse even knew about it, but didn't call the police. All he did was make Kaylin promise to do better. That was it. 
there was just a lot of fear. Like, if this, this is just going to keep happening if we don't have something on record to kind of hold him accountable, whatever form that takes or however far it goes. Residents finally decided to call the police. Terry agreed. But almost immediately, the process seemed to confirm their fears about the cops. Terry was asked to come to the sheriff's office to give a formal statement. It's a two-hour drive along a winding, crumbling road. The deputy who met her was brusque and refused to allow Jen to accompany Terry into the small interview room. After the brief meeting, the deputy said the sheriff's office had talked to Keelan and would not be taking any action. No charges, no restraining order. I think she felt even more kind of shamed and also just given the runaround. She made this big trip into town. She had to really work up the courage to do it. Again, she was doing it because community members wanted her to put it on record in case something happened in the future. And then she was treated like that. Over several months, a group of Petrolia residents flooded the district attorney's office with emails and phone calls. The earlier victim came forward. There was a new DA, a woman with experience handling sex crimes. Prosecutors renewed the investigation and charged Kaylin with raping Terry and the other woman. He was convicted, and last summer he was sentenced to 23 years. It was the first prosecution of its kind in Humboldt County, and a big deal for the people in Petrolia. Still, when I went to see Sam Epperson, he was despondent. He's the guy who originally hired Terry to work on his farm. Are you all right? I've been having a hard time. The situation seems kind of hopeless. Sam testified against Kayla Meserve. He wanted to make sure nothing like this would happen again. But like a lot of people here, Sam still feels conflicted. He wonders if it was a mistake to bring in the police. He can't accept that Kaylin will grow old in prison. He'd rather see him rehabilitated, given a second chance. My advice would have been to him, but he never came and talked to me. It would, be, would have been to immediately go into drug rehab, go see a sex therapist with, that deals with specifically with those kinds of crimes, and to apologize to the community. Sam remains on his farm. He says he wants to keep things small, modest, and defend the community values embodied by the hippies who settled here almost half a century ago. Jen, Terry's therapist, says the assault and the town's response was another nudge out of Petrolia. She and her family have relocated. Terry, like many Trimigrants, moved away. Carmen also moved on. She's the woman who says she was trafficked to Northern California from her hometown in Mexico. She started working as a cook at a Mexican restaurant in another state and moved into a small two-bedroom apartment with her father, aunt, uncle, nephew, and her one-year-old daughter. After this story aired last summer, the community in Northern California took action. An association of major marijuana growers called for better labor regulations and called for an end to the silence about sexual abuse in the pot grows. One of the country's largest labor unions even got involved. The deputy who investigated Kayla Meserve was reassigned and the Humboldt County undersheriff acknowledged their investigation could have been handled better. That said, 
Even though California has fully legalized marijuana, the state has yet to develop new regulations that might protect workers. Next, we hear from a man who made a career out of luring women into the sex trade and who's not shy about sharing his secrets. Coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Bridge City Cleaning Service, a local company providing custom cleaning to hundreds of homes in the greater Portland area. More information at bridgecitycleaning.com or by phone at Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. No one really knows how many trafficking victims there are in the U.S. A few years ago, some of the country's top researchers tried to estimate it and ended up with a wild range that went from a few thousand to tens of thousands. Basically, they said, we're just guessing. Trafficking is hard to measure, partly because you can't always tell who's selling sex voluntarily and who's coerced or forced. Sometimes the women themselves aren't sure. The pimps who target them know exactly what their weaknesses are. They've spent years figuring out ways to exploit them. Victims are often held not by chains, but by manipulation, fear, and even what some would call love. APM reports Emily Havoc takes a look at how someone might fall for these tactics through voices you won't often hear on the radio. We start with a young woman picked up by police at an Illinois truck stop. It's early on a Saturday morning, about two and a half years ago. Just before we talk anymore, I'm going to read you your rights. It's I know not, you don't need to. It's not a real dramatic thing. It's just something I got to let you know, okay? I know. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be... Police in Bloomington, her. Illinois, are arresting a 19-year-old. They found her in a semi with a trucker and a $20 bill. Now she's in the back of a squad car. We're not identifying her because she says she was coerced into selling sex. She's exhausted and hard to follow at times. I haven't got no sleep for three days. Okay. I haven't eaten for three days because they didn't feed me or nothing. There's barely food in the house. While the other cops look around for the guy who sold her, this one tries to get the details of how she ended up in the sex trade. Police and women in prostitution haven't always had the best relationships. But this officer is patient. She seems to trust him and starts to tell him her backstory. When did you start getting the system and end up leaving? I, I left town when I was 16. Were you... In foster care before that, or who were you living with when you were My dad, but there was certain stuff going on in the house. Okay. They kept switching me around, foster parents to foster parents. Okay. Uh, residential to residential. Okay. She tells the officer that staff at her group home in Rockford, Illinois, were touching her 
When she was brought to Chicago for psychiatric testing, she saw her chance to get away. She ran out a back door, got a ride to Bloomington to see a guy she thought was a friend. I thought it was going to be safe down here in Bloomington. It wasn't safe. 20 minutes after she got there, she says her friend passed her off to a man she knew only as B.D. He had her turning tricks to pay rent. And she says when she tried to leave, he stopped her. He was pulling and tugging on me, saying, you're going to come back because I didn't want to prostitute. But B.D. picked me up and and grabbed me by my arm, told me you're not leaving me. She says on her third day with him, he brought her to this truck stop. Now she wants to know where she'll go next, but the cop can't tell her. He doesn't even know. He heads for the police station while she tries to stay awake. Uh, I know, I'm just tired, man. I haven't slept in three days. We're going to the police department for right now. I just want a blanket to lay down with. I should be able to find your blanket. They head out, but they don't get far. They notice a man walking down the street away from the truck stop. The officer has his partner stop the guy, and then he pulls up with the lights on so no one can see the young woman in the squad. From behind the brights, she confirms the cop's hunch. It's BD. Police arrested BD, and a grand jury heard his case. Today, he's serving time just a couple hours south of that truck stop at Robinson Correctional Center. I wrote him a letter there asking for an interview, and I was kind of surprised when he said yes. We meet in a tiny cinder block room in the prison and sit at a round table. He tells me his real name. Darren Cartier Edmondson. He's 29 years old and six feet tall with glasses and a goatee. He's wearing a blue prison jumpsuit and a crucifix around his neck. He's strikingly polite. He even offers to help with the microphone. You can actually hold it if you want. Edmondson has his speech ready. He says that young woman's story was exaggerated. I'm not one to force someone to do anything they don't want to do. But I will assist you in what you do. And um, that's why I don't consider myself a pimp. I was more like an entrepreneur. If the woman's version of events had been proven, Edmondson might have been looking at a trafficking conviction. Under Illinois state law, a pimp who uses force or physical restraint or even threatens it can be charged with trafficking. But this wasn't proven. Instead, Edmondson took a plea deal. He's serving a year for promoting prostitution and another six for burglary. He's also talking to me, which he sees as part of his penance. Like I say, I'm doing this to pay my debts to society. I want to inform people about what goes on. Were you around a lot of prostitution uh, in Chicago growing up? Yes, I was. I was actually exposed to the lifestyle at a real young age. Um, When he was 15, his 17-year-old girlfriend worked as a stripper. On school nights, she would just, you know, like, have me sit out in the car and, you know, protect it. And then I I realized that inside of the club, what went on other than the stripping. A few years later, when Edmondson was 19, he found himself living next door to a state-run transitional house for troubled girls, like the one the girl who was arrested ran away from. He thought, gold mine. They got their own apartments, and then the staff that's supposed to be here watching them, they ain't none that's watching them. So I figured, hell, I ain't even got to get no rooms. They got their own apartments. Let's go. For the next decade, Edmondson made his living selling sex. At the time of his arrest, he says he had eight girls working for him, and almost all of them were runaways. They come from those group homes broken. They broken. They need love. And the first person... Just show them any type of affection, that's who they're going to open up to. 
So they're going to look for it on the outside. And they might meet a guy like me. Well, the old me. What did any given day look like? Can you take me through just an average day when you were kind of in the thick of this? I wake up. I shower uh, for about 45 minutes. Um, One of the girls are probably ironing my box of briefs and socks. And uh, I get dressed. I get in the car. First thing I do is I go check my hotel rooms every day. I would want to be up there first thing in the morning to, you know, for the tournament, for the money. Throughout our interview, Edmondson repeats one phrase a lot. Financial stability. He says his family was full of self-made men, from restaurant owners to cocaine dealers. I, I grew up around a lot of money. I just wanted to make my own. I wanted to make a name for myself. I wanted Darren Cartier to really mean something. So... So had something to prove a little bit. Yeah, I had something to prove. Edmondson says he feels bad now for what he did. And he was conflicted back then, too. Some nights he would get drunk and high and wrestle with what he was doing. I used to tell myself, I want to quit, I want to stop. Um, I need to change. And then the other side of me is like, when it pushed that angel off my shoulder and the devil horns come out, it's like, man, you just got to get this money, man. You're soft, you know, you can't be, you know, you got to get this bread. That's what it's all about. As we talk, I get the feeling he's still kind of swinging back and forth. One minute he's regretting the past and the next he's reveling in it. It's like he can't decide how to think about the last 10 years of his life, whether it was wrong or right. He says he and the women who worked for him lived like one big happy family, just one where he controlled all the money. I didn't treat them like a piece of property. I didn't. They lived with me, you know. They lived with in, in a comfort zone, you know. They got to get on the computer all day or watch a flat screen until it was time to work. Or well, there was never any abuse. Or we used to have fun. A lot of good times. A lot of good memories. Edmondson says he never used force. He didn't have to. He just targeted women he knew he could control. Just by the love and affection. The wordplay. That's what I like to call it. My wordplay. And then, um, ultimately, that they'll work. Edmondson insists he never used the kind of violence the young woman described. And like many of these situations, it turns into a he said, she said. Regardless, Edmondson's strategy of manipulating the most vulnerable is not unique. Actually, it's textbook. In a year covering this topic, we've heard from survivors and advocates across the country, and they all say the same thing. These pimps have an eye for it, that thing that makes somebody an easy target. Runaways, victims of rape and prior abuse, children of unstable homes. There's always going to be someone ready to exploit them. But when he gets out of prison, Edmondson says he won't be one of them anymore. And he says it's not just because he got caught. I actually have a daughter that's about to be 15 when I come home and I'm not there in her life uh, like I'm supposed to and I don't want her to go down the same road that these girls went down. I ask him why? I wouldn't want them to be I wouldn't want them to be manipulated. Ultimately I wouldn't want them to be manipulated. Edmondson hopes to make things better for his daughter. As for the young woman we heard from in the squad car, she went missing again more than once since that November morning. 
But these days, she's taking back some control, filing a lawsuit against the group home she ran from into Edmondson's hands. She's accusing them of negligence, battery, and sexual abuse. Our story was produced by Emily Havick of APM Reports. Now, on the streets, it's guys like Darren Edmondson, pimps, who control the market for sex. But on the virtual street corner, a small group of suburban sex buyers are reshaping the marketplace to feed their fantasies. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Support for X-Ray FM comes from our listeners, as well as Brass Tack Sandwiches, providing house-made ingredients and responsibly sourced sandwiches to meat lovers and vegans alike. Brass Tax is located on North Vancouver. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. The Internet has made it much easier for people selling sex and those who want to buy it to find each other. Hello? Yeah, I saw your ad. Yeah, this is Amy. Yeah, are you available today? The Internet has also given police a new tool for catching Johns. This is tape of a police sting. Officers place fake ads like this on Backpage.com the largest site for escort ads and arrest guys who show up for a date. But the buying and selling of sex is moving beyond Backpage, deeper into the Internet, to more secretive online communities that are taking the trade to a whole nother level. Sasha Aslanian of APM Reports spent a year and a half investigating the illegal sex industry. She found a thriving market of online sex buyers hiding in plain sight in the wealthy suburbs of Seattle. Just a note, the sexual content in this story may not be suitable for young listeners. So, a guy walks into a bar. Luke Hillman's a wiry fellow in his early 40s. He's joining a group of men he first met on the internet in Bellevue, Washington, a posh suburb of Seattle. What's going on? Good? No? So I, you know, I walk up to these guys, you know, I give them my handle, my online handle, and, and I say, hey, I'm so-and-so. And, uh, you know, they're like, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, everybody's shaking hands. And it's just like it's a normal, you know, it's just a bunch of guys at a bar. A bunch of guys leading double lives. By day, they worked for some of the most prominent employers in the Seattle area. Microsoft, Boeing, Amazon. One was a radiologist, another a dentist. But in their off hours... These guys were big-time sex buyers, and they had no clue that the man they'd invited into their circle was a cop. 
This is Detective Luke Hillman. Today's date is September 1st, 2015. And the time Luke had been meeting with these guys, undercover, for months, secretly recording their conversations. And the classification is criminal investigation of human trafficking. The men had met through an online site called thereviewboard.net. It's one of many so-called John boards across the country where men review prostitutes. Think Yelp for the flesh trade. Investigators say this one had between 15 and 20,000 members. The way it works is they pay for sex with a woman, then write a review for other guys to read. They'd rate her body, how big her breasts were, whether she was a moaner or a screamer, which sex act she was willing to perform, her hourly rates, and her energy level during the session. Luke convinced the guys he was one of them by writing fake reviews. Over steak and beer, they discussed their hobby with the same gusto they did online. Luke says they didn't seem to notice or care that waitresses could hear and other patrons moved away. I remember sitting there the first time and I was just like, I mean, I was like looking around, praying that nobody would see me sitting with these guys and would hear what they were saying. Like this guy who's wondering if he can trust a compliment on his anatomy from a porn star he's watched on video many times. The downside to being with a porn star is at the same time she's telling you how wonderful you are, you have the image of everybody she's done with on television, you're thinking, when you say I'm big, I'm finding this hard to believe because I have seen what you have taken. (laughs) These men saw themselves as connoisseurs of the sex trade always searching out new experiences and new women. In their fantasy, they'd left the riffraff behind on Backpage. Sigurd Zittars, the man who ran the review board, mocked Backpage to his members. He wrote, Backpage is the bottom of the barrel. Skanks, pimps, ripoffs, fake photos, bait and switch, underage girls, the works. He also posted, If you're meeting complete strangers from Backpage at the Motel 6, be sure to bring along enough cash to post bail and be sure to sew the name and phone number of your next of kin in your underwear. Luke originally created his online persona on the review board thinking these guys might lead him to the bigger fish who were supplying the women. But once he was accepted inside, he was invited into a smaller group of men who were blurring the lines between supply and demand. It began with an invitation from a guy using the handle Peter Rabbit. So he contacted me and said, hey, there's a group of us. We kind of have an informal email group. We all exchange intel. It's kind of a private group where like-minded people, um, we all kind of share our experiences and, and we share intel. And so I think you would be a good fit for the group. What do you think? Peter Rabbit was really Charles Peters, a 46-year-old pharmaceutical consultant from Portland. He was the leader of The League, as it was called, short for The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It was made up of 16 men in the Seattle area and an additional 25 members from other states, mostly California, but as far away as Texas, Virginia, and Massachusetts. Peters ran a password-protected website for League members to discuss their obsession, K-Girls, Korean prostitutes. They had to create their own site because Asian agencies had a reputation for sex trafficking. Sigurd Zittars, the owner of the review board, limited the reviews of Asian providers because he didn't want to risk attracting the police. One night while undercover, Luke asked him about it as they walked to their cars. Is it agencies in general or is it just, I mean, it seems like Asian agencies get a lot more attention. 
that's where the trafficking issues come from. Yeah. It's difficult to hear, but what he says is, the women are moved in and out of cities in a synchronized way. In other words, somebody is controlling their movements. We're supposed to believe this is all a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, right. The K-Girls traveled from Las Vegas to Los Angeles and Chicago. It was an organized circuit spread across the country, controlled by seven agencies, according to police documents. Bookers in another city would screen potential clients and schedule appointments. The women were advertised as available 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week. League members were spending $300 per session multiple times a week. They boasted about their exploits with K-Girls, but sometimes the reality of what the women were experiencing punctured their fantasies. The women struggled with English. Reviewers mentioned the Korean women using phone apps to translate. One reviewer wrote, very weak English and so nervous I felt bad for her. Another woman admitted to a customer she was scared. One man complained that the breakdown in communication could be a mood killer. You might not think a small group of guys in Seattle could be significant players in the sex trade in America, but they're an important clue in understanding the illegal market. About 15% of American men ever buy sex, and just a small slice of them are high-frequency buyers like these guys in Seattle. But these hobbyists, as they call themselves, are getting new scrutiny from researchers like Alex Trouteau. He runs an anti-trafficking nonprofit in Atlanta called YouthSpark. And I, as a researcher, hadn't been caring that much about John Boards because the lens through which I was looking at it initially was to say, hey, listen, we're talking about, you know, 5% of individuals who engage in this type of activity who call themselves hobbyists. In the scheme of things, that's not worth worrying about. You know, you've got 95% of guys who are more amateurish and perhaps more easily deterred. But that all changed when we started to look at it instead of at the individual level, at the transaction level. And we understood that that 5% accounts for roughly half of the number of illegal sex transactions nationwide. In other words, it's possible that a small group of men is generating almost 50% of the sex trade. And in the case of the league, a small number of high-frequency buyers were getting involved on both sides, supply and demand, to prosecutors the collusion looked more like organized crime. Valiant Ritchie is with the prosecutor's office in King County, Washington. He's one of the lead attorneys on the case. They are all in communication with each other. They are all devoted to a singular goal, which is an illegal goal. They are all devoted to a goal which takes advantage of people and exploits them. And they're doing it for their own benefit. It's not a financial benefit, but it's a personal sexual gratification benefit. After six months of undercover surveillance, police and prosecutors in King County felt they had the evidence. It was time for the takedown. On a Tuesday night in January, Hillman walked into the Pump House Bar and Grill in Bellevue. It was pretty funny because we're sitting at a table. I think there was about maybe eight, nine or ten of us. While the waitress delivered their orders, league members talked loudly about which K-girls would make their best of the year lists in 2015. I knew it was coming, so, but, I, you know, out of the corner of my eye, I can see, you know, it's just like police officer after police officer after police officer coming in the door. Luke watched as people in the restaurant grew quiet, sensing something was up. These guys were just oblivious. They were just chatting away and just, you know, gregarious and going on and on about this stuff. These guys just didn't get it. 
Police encircled the table. Gentlemen, everybody put your hands on top of your head. Put your hands on top of your head. Do it now. This is not a joke. I'm telling you, put your hands on your head. Everybody. And then it just got, you know, everybody just shut up. And um, But I got, you know, arrested with them. They took me out and um, put me in a car and all that stuff to make it look like, um, you know, I was arrested with them. Luke stayed in character as he waited in the back of a squad car. League leader Charles Peters advised him on how to play it cool. We didn't do anything. We were just having dinner. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. I'm the King County Sheriff. Standing between poster boards of online sex ads, Sheriff John Urquhart held a news conference in downtown Seattle to announce the arrests. He said the league's K-Girls website had been shut down. They also took down the bigger site, the review board. They seized terabytes of information on its 15 to 20,000 members across the country. We all know what Backpage is, Backpage.com. This is Backpage on steroids. The feds had seized review sites before. The FBI went after the operators of MyRedBook.com in California. But King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg took to the podium to explain why this was different. We're aware of no other jurisdiction in the country that has targeted an organized network of sex buyers for promoting prostitution. In case promoting prostitution sounds like legalese, here's a translation from Prosecutor Valiant Ritchie. So they were really operating as pimps. They're not charged with promoting prostitution because they went and bought a lot of sex. They're charged with promoting prostitution because they expanded the market. They facilitated visits to these women. They connected new buyers to the women and helped with the screening process. They wrote reviews about them to facilitate that. Those are the acts that constitute promoting prostitution. Authorities busted eight brothels. Four brothel owners, including two Korean women, were charged. Two men who started out as customers had worked their way into the enterprise. A dozen K-girls working in the brothels were offered services for trafficking victims and released. We don't know how many of these women were trafficked from Korea, but one woman who'd formerly worked in one of the brothels told federal immigration authorities she was forced into prostitution to pay off loan sharks in Korea. That's known as debt bondage, and it's a tactic used by traffickers to force women into the sex trade. The Korean consulate in Seattle declined to comment on the pipeline of Korean women, citing victims' privacy. As for the members of the so-called League, 16 were charged with promoting prostitution, a felony. So far, more than half have pleaded guilty. None of these men had previous criminal records, and the personal fallout for some of them has been devastating. Just before he was to serve his 90 days home detention, Sigurd Zittars, the man who ran the review board, took his life. Another man, Paul Reinhardt, choked up at his sentencing when he talked about his children, and he apologized for what he called a continuous series of bad decisions. I became involved in illegal activity in Belgium. First as a customer, but over time, I drew far too close into it. I lost sight and I lost perspective. In my actions, I was deceiving my family and colleagues. I took on a misguided feeling This was a community like other legitimate communities. It's that community Reinhardt talked about 
that got the attention of prosecutors. Valiant Richie says, on Backpage, customers don't work together. Review boards, on the other hand, encourage it. They normalize and promote sex buying, and people working to end demand for sex trafficking shouldn't ignore them. Right now, we are at the tip of the spear on the issue of review boards. Very few people have put much thought into these. And in this case was when we first started realizing how toxic they could be. This review board is gone. But Richie says the thousands of members who were not arrested have left a digital trail. And I think there's going to be some really interesting things that come out of that that haven't been done before. Because you have all their email addresses. We have a lot of emails. Sasha Aslanian is a correspondent with APM Reports. Since our story originally aired in September, there have been 13 more arrests, bringing the number to 33. Updates to the show were produced by Julia B. Chan and edited by David Richer. Michael Montgomery was our original lead producer, and the show was edited by Taki Telenitas. Special thanks to our reporter, Fernanda Camarena. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note Mullen. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music today is from Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the Ethics